This is the Third Degree Podcast, where one man is on one mission to cut through the noise, to present a hard-hitting, no-nonsense, and straight-talking approach to the biggest news stories and issues affecting you. Welcome to episode 53 of the Third Degree Podcast. My name is Sam Asad, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the latest news here in Ireland when it comes to issues such as the housing crisis and healthcare. I'll also be talking about the state of the political parties in Ireland at the moment. Plus, I'll be discussing all things Brexit, including taking a look at the UK general election scheduled to take place next month. Okay, so let's just get right to it because we have a lot of ground to cover. So here in Ireland, other than Brexit, we have many issues to contend with moving forward. The housing crisis is still present in this country. And it depends on who you listen to because some experts, some property professionals are saying that house prices are expected to fall. According to the Central Statistics Office, house prices in Dublin have fallen, but prices across the country continue to increase at a slow rate. But on the other hand, some experts expect prices to rise. For example, housing expert Professor PJ Drudy of Trinity College in Dublin said that the government's plan to spend 1.1 billion euro to support the delivery of 11,000 new social homes in 2020 as part of the recently published budget is unfocused and it won't do enough to solve the crisis in Ireland's housing. And he went on to explain that Ireland was not likely to see the the delivery of any housing on a long-term basis and suspected that the government is again putting much of this money into the private rental market, which they are relying on heavily in order to meet demand. Either way you look at it, hard-working people are still struggling to afford rent, still struggling to buy a property, still struggling to keep a roof over their heads. Young people are being forced to move back home with their parents. Here in Dublin, for example, people are leaving Dublin because they can't afford the rent prices here. They're either going to a different part of the country or even emigrating. People are at the mercy of landlords who can make a tenant's life very difficult by putting the rent up at any time, for example. There was a story that came out recently about a woman in Ireland who was offered reduced rent in return for sex with her landlord. And there are apparently many other cases of this type of situation happening in this country. And I do want to make the point that we shouldn't generalise all landlords as bad people because I believe the majority of landlords in this country are good, decent and reasonable people. Even one of the leading homelessness charities, Focus Ireland, said earlier this year that the majority of landlords evicting tenants in order to sell their properties are genuine and went on to, to suggest that only a small minority of landlords are fraudulently evicting families in order to increase the rent for new tenants. But anyway, I won't continue to go on any further about the housing crisis right now because I did a whole podcast about this issue late last year in which everything I talked about then is pretty much still relevant to the situation currently. So check that out if you want to hear more of, of that. It was episode 36. It's actually my highest listened to episode 
of the Third Degree podcast, so it was quite well received. But moving on, homelessness in Ireland is at record numbers and continues to rise. The latest official figures show that just over 10,000 people are relying on emergency accommodation, including over 3,000 young children. It's been eight months in a row where more than 10,000 people were recorded as homeless. And that number doesn't even take into account the full extent of the homelessness problem in Ireland. That number doesn't include those who couch surf or those sleeping rough or those sleeping in squats, for example. And I've talked in depth about the homelessness issue before as well in many previous podcasts, so I don't want to repeat my thoughts here again, but it's continuing to get worse. Another issue that needs to be tackled is healthcare because over 550,000 people are on waiting lists. More than 29,000 women are waiting for an appointment to see a gynecologist. More than 47,000 children are on waiting lists to see a hospital consultant, according to the Children's Health Ireland Hospital Group. The data they released show that 19,000 children are waiting over 12 months to see a paediatrician and 5,000 are waiting to see a heart specialist. Understaffing is one of the many reasons for these significant numbers. The recruitment crisis needs to be seriously addressed in order to tackle the length of waiting lists in Ireland. There were 11,452 patients waiting on trolleys for a bed in Irish hospitals during the month of October, which is double the number of people waiting on trolleys for a bed 10 years ago. According to the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organization, October 2019 was the worst ever October for overcrowding on record. And it's because of this level of overcrowding and understaffing which results in patients' lives being at risk. The healthcare sector is crying out for an increase in resources, extra staff and new hospitals. So Ireland's health services they need to be run more efficiently and the whole system itself needs to be streamlined in my view. While healthcare can be a complex issue at times, it's something that is so vital and central to any country. So the fact that we have all these issues with our health services happening in this country, happening on a small island with a small population of about 5 million people, is baffling to me. And it could be a number of reasons how... Ireland's healthcare system got to this stage. It could be a lack of funding, could be due to the government cutbacks in the health budget in the past. Perhaps the blame lies more with the management of the HSE. But one last point I want to bring up when it comes to Ireland's healthcare system concerns one of the biggest health scandals in the history of this country because the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, formally apologised recently to the women and the families affected by the failures in the cervical check screening program. And here's just a snippet of the state apology delivered by the Taoiseach in the doll. As Taoiseach on behalf of the state, I apologise to the women and their loved ones who suffered from a litany of failures in how cervical screening in our country operated over many years. I do so having listened to many of those affected, and I do so guided by the Scali Inquiry report. Today we say sorry to those whose lives were shattered. We say sorry to those whose lives were destroyed and to those whose lives could have been different. We know that cancer screening programs cannot detect all cancers, but we also know that many failures have taken place. We are sorry for the failures of clinical governance, sorry for the failures of leadership and management, sorry for the failure to tell the whole truth 
and to do so in a timely manner. Sorry for the humiliation, the disrespect and deceit, the false reassurance, the attempts to play down the seriousness of this debacle by some and inaccuracies and claims from others, all of which added to confusion and public concern. A state apology may not provide closure, but I hope it will help to heal. Now we've found the truth and the facts. We're making changes to put things right. We need now to restore trust and rebuild relationships that have been severely damaged. On behalf of the government and the state, I'm sorry that all this happened, and I apologise to all those hurt or wronged. And we vow now to make sure that it never happens to anyone else ever again. So this was a big story that was revealed last year. It involved several women suing the HSE for receiving incorrect smear test results for cervical cancer. 221 women had developed cervical cancer after having a misdiagnosed smear test and 162 of those had not been told that the initial results were incorrect. And I read that 20 of these women died, while many could have potentially benefited from earlier diagnosis and earlier treatment. So I think it's fair to say that everyone involved with this scandal should not be allowed to work in the healthcare sector again. People should be held responsible for the decisions they made, especially ones as devastating as this. Imagine receiving a smear test, being told that you're in the clear and good to go, and then being told years after that you were in fact not clear this whole time. Or worse yet, people dying and losing their life because of human error. It really is beyond my comprehension how any person can be told years later that they need treatment for cancer in this case. And it should be said that one could imagine any of the cancer screening tests being not fit for purpose. In fact, after this story came to light, then other national cancer screening programs started to face scrutiny and criticism about how they are run, such as the breast screening program and the bowel screening program. Any one of us could be in that situation, male or female. We all could be affected by this level of medical malpractice. So every single woman and their families who have been impacted by this malpractice deserve the huge wave of sympathy by the public that has come their way since the story broke. And I think, unfortunately, this whole scandal may cast a shadow of doubt on the credibility of those honest, hard-working, above-board consultants who work in cervical smear clinics. But th I think that's a minor consequence in the grand scheme of things, considering that lives were lost here as a result. And I don't think people would be so untrusting of the system and foolish as to not get smear tests anymore because of this. Smear tests are still vital in identifying if cancer is present or if there are conditions which, if left untreated, might lead to cancer someday. So it can still save lives. But when it comes to the apology itself from the Taoiseach, I think the apology means nothing if things don't change for the better. Past Taoiseachs have offered state apologies before. Bertie Ahern in 1999 gave an apology to the victims of child abuse in state institutions. And back in 2013, Enda Kenny gave an apology to the Magdalene women. And it's fine and dandy for politicians to offer apologies. It provides a great soundbite moment for the government. But if in this case, the healthcare system doesn't change, then does the apology really make a significant difference. 
I believe that only someone who has been directly impacted by this can make that determination on if it makes a significant difference. Vicky Phelan is the perfect example because it was her high court case against the state that was really one of the catalysts for the emergence of the scandal in the first place. If it were not for her and others, then we might all still be in the dark over what occurred here. But she did say in relation to the apology that, quote, I really do think that it can help a lot of people to move on with their lives. It's not going to change things. It's not going to bring their loved ones back. But I did think the apology was more than what we were expecting, unquote. So it seems that the apology means a lot to her. But she did also say that she was very disappointed that the doll chamber wasn't full for the apology. She said that those who didn't attend, who didn't bother to attend, showed a lack of respect. And she does make a valid point that the politicians who didn't see this as important enough to attend may regret it someday. They may regret it come election time when voters will remember that. But was the apology long overdue? Yeah, that's a fair point. And of course, you'll have your critics saying that this is nothing more than a forced apology. But to finish up on this, I'll say that what happened here was appalling. It was a disgrace that women died because of an incompetent health service. It's just something that is unacceptable in a modern health service. And I think there are still many questions to be answered about the extent of the failings of the cervical check screening program. And now the government has to work on rebuilding public confidence in these screening programs. So my point all along was that, yes, we have many other problems in this country other than Brexit, which seems to dominate the news coverage these days. And I'll be talking about the latest news on Brexit in a matter of moments. But before I get to that, let's discuss the state of the political parties in Ireland at the moment. So if we look at some of the polling, the latest Sunday Business Post Red Sea poll has Fianna Fáil at 24%, Fine Gael at 32%. The latest Irish Times opinion polls suggest that support for Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and the current government has increased with voters approving of his handling of Brexit. The government's approval rating has risen to 43%, up from 31% back in May. In that same Irish Times poll, support for Fine Gael stands at 29%, with Fianna Fáil at 25%, so only a marginal lead for Fine Gael over Fianna Fáil there. Support for Sinn Féin has decreased to 14%, which is its lowest level since 2016. Support for the Green Party is at 8%, Labour Party at 6%, Independence at 10 while everyone else, including the Solidarity, People Before Profit Party and the Social Democrats are at just 1%. So there has been some talk of a general election in Ireland. There are by-elections coming up in November, but in terms of a general election, the Fianna Fáil leader, Michal Martin, in early October ruled out having a general election this year. He did commit last year that Fianna Fáil would continue to prop up Fine Gael through the confidence and supply agreement until 2020 which has kept this minority government in place since May of 2016. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said that he would like an election to take place in May of 2020 and Fianna Fáil has also talked about an election happening in the spring of 2020. 
And there were reports saying that Leo Varadkar is under massive pressure from those within his own party to have an election before Christmas. But here's what the Taoiseach said recently when asked about the possibility of a general election before Christmas. Very often in Ireland, elections are indecisive. It can take weeks or months to form a new government. And I don't think it would be in the country's interest uh, for us to be uh, trying to put together a government uh, or uh, to only have a caretaker government uh, during what could be a crucial and a potentially dangerous time for Ireland. Uh, so what matters to me as Taoiseach is what's in the interest of the country first. Uh, and it's not in the interest of the country uh, for us to go to the polls at this time, uh, in my view. And that's my, my decision. So there you go. The Taoiseach has ruled out an early general election before Christmas, basically saying that it is not in the best interests of the country to call for one when you take into account all the uncertainty around Brexit. And I agree. With another extension given to the UK to get a Brexit deal passed, I don't think it's the best time. The government, the Irish government, has been given space to address the issues surrounding Brexit, and there's been in my opinion, a lot of unity around how the issue has been dealt with. Plus, polls indicate that voters approve of the government's handling of Brexit, one of which is a 60% approval rating. So if you think about it, is an election really necessary at this point in time? I'm all for seeing the people of Ireland having the opportunity to put this government to test in a general election scenario, but I don't believe it's absolutely essential at this stage and quite frankly, I don't think the majority in this country want to see an election happen at this time either. And in saying that, I don't think holding an election under any circumstances so close to Christmas is a good idea. There are many reasons why it is mostly seen as a bad idea. Ireland was on the verge of having a general election back in late 2017, before Christmas, after that whole controversy involving the former Tanishta Frances Fitzgerald, when she was accused of interfering in the case of a whistleblower who had claimed widespread corruption in the police service. In the end, we dodged having an election, but I remember saying at the time that an election just before Christmas would really harshen the Christmas vibe, don't you think? We all have enough to be dealing with around Christmas time. We don't want to be hearing false promises at Christmas time. It's not my idea of festive cheer anyway. And most people did not want an election at that time coming up to Christmas. So my point being, again, that it's not the most ideal time to call for one for many reasons. So I think spring 2020 would be well-timed for a general election in Ireland. But if we look into the future and consider what would happen in a general election scenario, I'd say it would be either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil coming out on top, as every Irish government has been led by one of these two political parties. And at this point, could you see either of these parties not involved in forming the next government? I don't believe so. And there are those who say that both parties are virtually the same. There are a lot of similarities between the two, such as how they are both centre-right parties. They support policies that are quite business-friendly. But there are some differences, such as Fine Gael tends to be more liberal when it comes to social issues. That was made clear during the Eighth Amendment abortion referendum last year when 31 Fianna Fáil TDs and senators called for a no vote. And there are also some differences between the parties on who they represent and appeal to. 
the issue with Fine Gael is that there's a lot of people out there who are just fed up and want to see change in a lot of areas, such as the housing problem, which they see is getting worse and worse. The issue with Fianna Fáil is that people remember the role they played in the financial crisis, which resulted in the worst recession to hit Ireland since the 1980s. Many believe that it was their economic policy, such as the tax breaks and the weak regulatory oversight of the central bank, that were at the heart of Ireland's banking crisis and the increase of public debt at the time. There are other choices, like Sinn Féin, for example, but too many are still very critical of Sinn Féin for their support of IRA violence during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. A lot of people believe that they should have supported an end to the conflict much sooner, sooner rather than later. I think that the vast majority of people in this country still consider Sinn Féin to be known as the political wing of the IRA. And I think that Sinn Féin, they seem to be taking the position nowadays that they want to be separate from the IRA, but at the same time are not willing to disown them either. But we all know the role that the party played in the peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, especially Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams, they were pivotal and crucial figures in constructing that Good Friday Agreement. But that was over 20 years ago. And if you look at the state of the party today, well, they're in a poor position currently. Earlier this year, in the local elections, it was nothing but bad news for Sinn Féin. They lost a lot of councillors. It went so wrong for them across the board. It was an incredibly disappointing result for the party moving forward. It was a massive blow to them. And in my opinion, the party has not changed dramatically under Mary Lou Macdonald's leadership. They had the opportunity to reinvent themselves when Jerry Adams stepped aside, but I think the party's credibility is damaged every single time a member of Sinn Féin acts as an apologist for the IRA. I think the party's credibility takes a hit every time dark clouds from the past crop up every now and again. And I think the party needs to be concentrating more on getting the power sharing system of government in Northern Ireland up and running again. And I've made the argument before that I don't even believe that Sinn Féin and the DUP want to govern together. So in my mind, both parties are at fault. They've done more to widen the divide between them than actually make a deal that puts a stable government in place which is badly needed up north. But that's a whole other issue. But don't get me wrong. I think voters can get behind Sinn Féin on some issues. For example, over the summer, Sinn Féin TD Pierce Doherty put out a video on social media that went viral when he essentially called out insurance companies for their claims that fraud is the main factor driving up insurance premiums. That was received very well from the public. And I think a lot of people would get behind insurance reform that would favour the consumer first and foremost, and also looking into the issue of dual pricing in the insurance market, which Pierce Doherty has been focusing on as well. But overall, I think the party needs to be regenerated and have a very clear message of what they stand for and be able to articulate that message effectively. Because in a general election scenario, I think they'd have their work cut out for them.
I did put together an entire podcast, by the way, about Sinn Féin after Jerry Adams stepped down as leader of the party. That was in episode 18. So check that out if you want to hear more of my thoughts on the party and other issues I touched on, such as the concept of a united Ireland that Sinn Féin have been known to be strong advocates for. But moving on, in regards to other political parties, there's the Green Party, which experienced a rise in support across the country during the local and European elections earlier this year. It was referred to as the Green Wave. But when you break it all down, the vast majority of voters gave their vote to either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. But it is still impressive nonetheless when you consider how back in the 2014 local elections, the Green Party received 1.6% of the vote. So they really had to build support back up since then. Their last stint in leadership was not perfect by any means when they were in a coalition government with Fianna Fáil from 2007 to 2011. They actually suffered a significant drop in support after leaving that coalition government. They lost all six of their seats in the Dáil that year in the general election. But fast forward to 2019, and since the Green Party is more or less a single-issue party, which is dealing with climate change and the environment, those issues are really at the core of their policies. But because voters are becoming more environmentally aware and environmentally conscious these days, the issue of climate change is being talked about more than ever before. So I think that played a big factor as to why the Green Party did so well in the local and European elections back in May. But the question is if those results and this green wave can translate into dull seats in a general election scenario. And I'm not so sure about that. I do have my doubts, to be honest. Plus, there may be too much concern about the Green Party increasing everyone's taxes if they gain power in government. But hey, there may be a lot of people out there who are happy enough to pay extra in taxes if it means that they see a return in their investment, so to speak, and see stronger environmental policies enacted. In terms of some of the other left-wing political parties, such as Labour, the Solidarity, People for a Profit Party, and the Social Democrats, while it is their job to hold the current government to account, there doesn't seem to be as much anger against the current government that there was before. I don't think there's enough anger there from the electorate to take Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil out of power. These parties are offering an alternative to the likes of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, but in my view, their message is not resonating as well as you may think with the vast majority of people in this country. While there is anger and resentment at the government surrounding issues such as housing, these parties haven't been able to harness that anger and translate it into votes. It's not enough to just trash the current government any chance you get. It's not enough to just have an anti-everything approach to what the government does. I'm not saying that these other parties don't have their own plans and policy ideas, but perhaps they haven't been delivering their message and agenda effectively enough to move the dial in their favour. And from the people I've spoke to, they tell me that while they recognise that there are alternative political parties to vote for in this country, they are aware of the other options. There isn't one that they feel enthusiastic about voting for. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm misreading the mood of the country right now. But I feel the next general election in Ireland 
will result in just more of the same. But now let's talk about what's been going on with Brexit lately. And first I'll say that I did a podcast all about Brexit earlier this year before the original Brexit deadline of the 29th of March. And I spoke about why people voted for Brexit to happen in the first place. I spoke about the impact of Brexit on Ireland, the idea of Ireland leaving the EU someday. And I also spoke about the growing calls for a second referendum on Brexit, which in my view should not take place. I explained why at the time and I still feel the same. So give that a listen if you want to hear more of my thoughts on Brexit. But a lot has happened since then. Theresa May stepped down as Prime Minister, which then allowed Boris Johnson to become Prime Minister. And he was always just waiting in the wings to become Prime Minister. But with Boris Johnson, at least you have someone who was one of the key figures for the Vote Leave campaign in 2016. Because I always thought putting Theresa May in charge of something that she doesn't fully and truly believe in didn't make sense in the long run. And the deal that she proposed in the end was very unpopular because in part it meant Britain would remain still pretty close to the European Union and still conform to many of the EU rules, more or less the same rules. But there are some differences between Theresa May's deal and the deal that Boris Johnson is proposing. Like, for example, in Theresa May's plan, it said, quote, the United Kingdom will consider aligning with union rules in relevant areas, unquote. And that was dropped in Boris Johnson's deal. I think some people are forgetting that Boris Johnson's deal includes a transition period during which Britain remains in the single market, customs union, and under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. So, yeah, there will be a period of time where the UK will still need to abide by EU rules and pay membership fees, and that transition period could theoretically be extended for one or two more years, but once it ends, then the UK can take control of its laws, money and borders. And I have my doubts that both sides can get everything sorted in such a short amount of time before December 2020. But there are reports saying that Boris Johnson will not seek an extension to the transition period if he remains as Prime Minister after this general election. So we'll see. But of course, as we know, Boris Johnson already failed to meet the previous Brexit deadline of October 31st. So I think, understandably, you have to see it as a possibility that the UK may not be able to strike a trade deal with the EU by the end of 2020. But that transition period is necessary. That standstill period is vital in order to provide certainty to all those impacted and to establish what the future relationship will be once that period is over. And Boris Johnson's deal looks like it will lessen the ties between the EU and the UK, with the UK being able to sign trade deals during the transition period, but they wouldn't be able to come into full effect until that period ends on the 31st of December 2020. It also removes the Irish backstop, which was a sticking point for many MPs, and replaced it with a new customs arrangement. I will get into that whole issue later on, but there are those who believe in leaving the EU who are disappointed and, and they say that this new agreement is not Brexit. They refer to it as Brexit in name only. You have others saying that Johnson's deal is at least a minor improvement on Theresa May's deal. You have some saying it's worse than Theresa May's deal. In my opinion, there is no such thing as a perfect Brexit deal. It's just not possible. I think an absolutely perfect Brexit deal 
is a fairy tale, if you ask me. But I don't think one individual should shoulder all the blame for this. Not Theresa May, not Boris Johnson, or not even Jeremy Corbyn for Brexit being in the state that it is right now, for, the, for this current impasse. Of course, they have to take some of the blame, but what about the EU? Because at the end of the day, this was a decision by the people of the UK to leave the EU. The EU did not, and in my view, still don't want the UK to leave. So they haven't been making it easy for the UK in the negotiation process. Of course, they don't want to they don't want it to look easy in order to deter other countries from even thinking about leaving as well. But also don't forget those MPs who were against the idea of Brexit from day one and still are against it to this day, and they simply don't want Brexit to be delivered at all. Or they vote against any deal in the hope that eventually a second referendum will be triggered. So it's difficult to salvage something out of Brexit when you have those in Parliament who are intent, who are hell-bent on not reaching an agreement and were intent from the very start. And don't forget those elected officials work for the public. And that's why it appears to a lot of voters who believe fundamentally in the concept of Brexit and democracy that these particular MPs are going against the will of the people. You even have those who voted to remain in 2016 who feel the same. So it's been three years of negotiations and several votes in the UK Parliament and still no proposal for leaving the EU has passed. This never-ending saga continues on. It's like the process is just going around in circles at this point. Brexit is becoming like a soap opera and a horrible one at that. So many twists and turns along the way. It's become more and more complicated by the day. And in saying that, I think some Brexit supporters have tried their best to simplify this whole debate. But the truth is that it is, it is an extremely complex issue. It's not simple or straightforward by any means. But let's talk about the current situation with Brexit. But first, let's hear from the leaders of the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party ahead of the UK general election on the 12th of December. We've got to get Brexit done. And uh, what I'm offering the country now is the, the chance really to move this thing over the line. Parliament refused finally to give approval on, uh, for us to come out on October the 30, 31st, which was a great disappointment. But if we, if we vote for the Conservatives now, vote for this government, we have the guarantee uh, that we have an oven-ready deal, uh, ready to go as soon as Parliament comes back on December the, the 13th. We can get it done, we can end the uncertainty, and then we can get on with all the things that I think the people of this country really want to, to focus on. So uh, get on with our programme of investing in the NHS, the biggest uh, investment in, in recent memory, uh, in 40 new hospitals, cutting GP uh, waiting times, get on with uh, spending uh, more in our every primary school, every secondary school uh, in our country, lifting up funding uh, for education, uh, get on with our program for full fibre broadband across the country, gigabit broadband, and of course uh, putting 20,000 more police officers on the streets of this country. But you can only do all those things once you've got Brexit done and ended the uncertainty. We are ready for an election. We're going to go out there with a very strong message of how we transform our society to end inequality and injustice and deal with the devastating poverty that so many people face. We always said we wanted an election, we do want an election, 
but we wanted no deal to be taken off the table. We've now had confirmation from all 28 EU member states that no deal is off the table, so we're going to go out there with the biggest campaign this party has ever mounted, totally united, totally determined, and I'm absolutely looking forward to going every part of this country with my wonderful shadow cabinet team here and all the fantastic Labour activists to give a message of hope where there isn't one with this government. There are no limits to my ambitions for the Liberal Democrats and indeed for our country because we can be better than this, than what we have, this choice between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. Millions of people are crying out for a positive liberal alternative to build an open, inclusive and fair society. And as Liberal Democrat leader, I am standing in this election as a candidate to be Prime Minister and build a brighter future for our country, the first thing we will do is stop Brexit and then we will move on to tackle the challenges that we face. He inherited a very tough situation. He inherited a new EU treaty that Mrs May had negotiated. The clock was running down. He did his best to improve it, to, to, to try and get it ratified. It didn't happen. I'm pleased it didn't happen because it didn't actually represent Brexit at all. Now there's a general election, there's a great chance to press the reset button, drop the treaty uh, and then we can go for a genuine Brexit. I'm urging him, please think again. Otherwise, if it does go through, if he wins this election and this goes through, it is not Brexit. The longer the public have to look at that withdrawal agreement, the less happy Leave voters are going to be. Uh, and, and I think if we get to December the 12th, and if he is trying to defend the withdrawal agreement as Brexit, he's going to have a very real problem. So that was Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, Joe Swinson and Nigel Farage. And you'll be hearing those voices a lot over the coming weeks as they all jockey for position as a general election is set to take place. It will be the first time that the UK will have a general election in the month of December since 1923 and the third general election that the UK will go through in just the past five years. And this all happened because the Prime Minister Boris Johnson secured a deal with the EU but was defeated by MPs in the Commons so he was required by law to seek an extension. The EU leaders agreed to yet another Brexit extension which is now the 31st of January 2020. However the UK can leave earlier if the House of Commons and the European Parliament approve the withdrawal agreement before then and now the UK have a general election to face as a result. And it was clear that Boris Johnson always wanted to hold an election. That seemed to be one of his top priorities. And now that extension has given him the opportunity to call for one. So I guess he got his wish in the end. And there is talk that this was his master plan all along. To force another Brexit extension, blame the opposition in Parliament, say it's all their fault, call a general election which sets up a campaign that pitches Parliament against the people. Either way, this election will determine the direction of Brexit. Boris Johnson of the Conservatives will look to regain a Conservative majority so he can push through his Brexit deal. It will certainly make Brexit easier to achieve. Jeremy Corbyn of the Labour Party says he would just scrap Boris Johnson's plan completely and get Brexit sorted within the first six months in power by negotiating more EU-friendly separation terms. He would then put it up for a vote against the option of simply staying in the EU. So Labour are interested in seeking a second referendum on Brexit. 
But then you have the Liberal Democrats who are totally opposed to the UK leaving the EU. You just heard from the leader of the party, Joe Swinson, that I played earlier. She says, if elected, then the Liberal Democrats will stop Brexit. They are the stop Brexit party. They say that if the Liberal Democrats win a majority at the next election, if people put into government the stop Brexit party, then stopping Brexit is exactly what people will get. They are basically standing on a platform of revoking Article 50. And let me just say something about that before I move on, because the Liberal Democrats are essentially saying that they're not going to respect the Democratic vote from 2016. Just cancel Brexit altogether. So a Democratic vote will be cancelled. One of the largest Democratic votes in the history of the UK will be overruled. The votes of 17.4 million people who voted for Brexit will be overruled. It doesn't make any sense to me. How can a party who calls themselves the Liberal Democrats be in support of that? Democrat is literally in the name of the party. When you think about it, the Liberal Democrats are campaigning for the people's vote in this general election, but weren't willing to honour the results of the Brexit referendum. And that's all people want, for the election result in 2016 to be honoured. Either you do that, or everyone's vote means nothing. Can people be sure that the Liberal Democrats will respect the results of this general election if it doesn't go in their favour? And even if it did, even if they win a majority, the party has opened themselves up to criticism from voters and opposing politicians who may say, well, why should we respect the result of the election? So I think there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't take too kindly to parties like the Liberal Democrats and their refusal to help deliver Brexit in good faith. I think people are less likely to vote for the Liberal Dems if that is going to be their position. So Brexit would be in serious doubt if the Liberal Democrats won a majority. But when it comes to the Labour Party, I'm sure their position will be, well, Boris Johnson, he constantly said for months that the UK would leave the EU on the 31st of October. Deal or no deal, with no delays. He repeated it many times. He even said that he'd rather be dead in a ditch than not leave on the 31st of October. But already broke that promise. So how can his word and his government be trusted? So I would assume that's going to be the talking point that Labour will be bringing up on the campaign trail. But there is another side to all this, and that's Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party, because he says that the Brexit Party would stand against the Conservatives in every single seat across the UK and would make sure every household in the country was made aware that Boris, Boris Johnson's deal was a sellout of Brexit, unless Boris Johnson agreed to withdraw his Brexit deal and propose a leave alliance. But Boris Johnson didn't waste much time and he swiftly rejected that proposition. And there's now concerns that the Brexit party will end up splitting the leave vote and thus paving the way for a Labour party government. So assuming that Boris Johnson will stick to his guns on that, I think the Prime Minister rejected the offer for two reasons. First of all, He's not going to abandon this crucial and thorough Brexit deal that his government negotiated tirelessly with the European Union. He has adopted this almost my way or the highway strategy when dealing with Brexit. He's not going to allow the Brexit party to dictate to him and the Conservatives on what the Brexit policy should be moving forward. 
it would be too big of a gamble for him to take in my view. And secondly, I think joining a leave alliance with Nigel Farage could alienate a lot of Conservative Party MPs who would not be willing to stand on a platform of a potential no deal because Nigel Farage has said on the record that no deal is the best deal. He said it's the only acceptable deal. But I'd reckon the majority of the Conservative MPs do not support a no-deal Brexit. I'd say Boris Johnson was happy enough to bring it up as a possibility so he could be in a stronger position to negotiate a better deal. And I believe most Brits oppose a no-deal Brexit. If a no-deal were to happen, in my view, it would place Britain in an even worse negotiating position with the EU than they are now. A far weaker position. And we've heard about all the possible ramifications of a no-deal Brexit to not only Britain, but also for us here in Ireland. Most economists and business groups seem to believe that no deal would lead to economic harm. It could affect individuals in all sorts of different ways. It could affect social and cultural life. could affect work, travel, business and farming, for example. I remember Taoiseach Leo Varadkar saying earlier this year that there will be some jobs and some businesses that cannot be saved in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And the President of the European Commission said that there will be border checks between Ireland and Northern Ireland in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And when it comes to the deal Boris Johnson wants to implement, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, which is a leading economic think tank, said that the damage caused by Boris Johnson's deal would be so huge that the UK would be better off continuing with the economic unpredictability from the ongoing Brexit crisis. According to their report, Boris Johnson's Brexit deal will cost the UK economy billions every year. They estimate that Britain's economy would be 3.5% smaller in 10 years' time under Johnson's plan than if it stayed in the EU. And while I think it's important to take that all on board and take it under advisement, Brexit is a completely different beast that is the first of its kind. So any forecasts and predictions of what may happen do have an element of uncertainty to them because nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows 100% what the after effects of Brexit will be. And as a result, it's forecasts like this that can be really effective in sowing doubt in people's minds about the effects of Brexit. But back to the issue of a no-deal Brexit for a second because reports say that Boris Johnson has abandoned the threat of a no-deal Brexit in his Conservative Party's manifesto for the December election and will be focusing on getting his deal approved. So it seems that no deal will be taken off the table. Jeremy Corbyn only agreed to holding an election on the terms that a no-deal Brexit was ruled out. He says he got confirmation from the 28 EU member states that there will be no deal. But I could imagine no deal becoming a real possibility again if this general election results in a hung parliament, for example. I think a no deal Brexit is not as likely anymore since Boris Johnson actually has a deal that is ready to go, but I still wouldn't rule it out. In terms of Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, I know Farage is seen as almost this Brexit messiah by some, as if Brexit starts and ends with him. I don't believe that any Brexit deal needs to get a seal of approval from Nigel Farage for it to be considered legitimate. But the reality is that he could jeopardise Brexit by the Brexit party campaigning in this election. There may be just enough voters 
who would rather go with the Brexit party and thus the pro-Brexit vote will be split in some seats and ultimately the victory could be handed to Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. But people shouldn't underestimate or overlook the Brexit party because in the European elections back in May, the Brexit party, which was it was about a five-week-old party at that time, won by a landslide. They won the most votes and became the top choice of those who had voted to leave the EU. So whether you love Nigel Farage or hate him, I know he irks a lot of people out there, but you can't deny that the Brexit party's success was significant at the time. So they do have the potential to be a major disruptor in this upcoming general election. But from the opinion polls I've seen, Boris Johnson does have a lead over Jeremy Corbyn. But as I've always said, the only poll that counts, the only one that will matter, is the one on election day. I don't put a whole lot of stock into opinion polls these days. For example, during the 2017 UK general election, opinion polls were consistently showing strong leads for the Conservatives over Labour, but their leads started to diminish in the final weeks of the campaign, and then we know it turned out to be a disaster for the Conservatives in the end, as they lost their majority. So things can dramatically change once the election gets closer and closer, but these polls are still worth taking a look at. And while Brexit is on the top of the agenda in this election, we can't forget about all the other issues, such as the UK's health service, the NHS, the housing shortage, the cost of living. I think there are some politicians in the UK who are using Brexit as an excuse as to why they are not tackling these other problems that their country faces. I think politicians have been using the EU and Brexit as a scapegoat, quite frankly. But in my view, in the last UK general election back in 2017, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was able to shift the election narrative from Brexit to domestic issues like public spending and education and healthcare. And that's how the Labour Party gained 30 seats and received their highest vote share since 2001. So I believe the Labour Party actually have a better chance if they did the same this time around. But because Brexit has really been overshadowing the political and policy agenda in the UK as of late, then it's going to be impossible to avoid the fact that this general election will be contested mostly on that basis. In terms of what may happen following the election, it's possible that a deal still cannot be agreed in Parliament before the next deadline of the 31st of January 2020. Will the UK just have to start all over again, go back to square one, go ask for yet another extension, go back to the drawing board, negotiate another deal and debate the deal in Parliament again. That's all possible. And Donald Tusk, who is the President of the European Council, said that this latest extension may be the last one. And I think the EU needs to be putting more stipulations in place for these extensions because if it's not sorted by the end of January and they give out more and more extensions, then Parliament will keep playing these power games. So the EU may need to put their foot down at some point and say, you know what, we're all fed up of this Brexit circus, so you clowns in Westminster need to make your minds up. Enough is enough. I don't think that's a position that they would ever take, but they can't keep this uncertainty going forever. It's not fair for those individuals and businesses 
that are going to be affected by Brexit in some way, shape or form. For example, businesses in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland have already been affected by Brexit. There are small and medium businesses in Ireland that had planned to expand or invest in their business, but now have either cancelled or postponed planned investment due to Brexit. When it comes to the deal Boris Johnson has put together, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar says that the deal is good for Ireland and Northern Ireland. The Irish government is behind it. They have assured us that this agreement guarantees no hard border will exist between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And it was the issue of the backstop that insurance policy, that legal guarantee of maintaining an open border between the North and the South of Ireland after Brexit, which was, I suppose, a thorn in the side of Brexit negotiators. But in this revised deal, the backstop is abolished in favour of giving Northern Ireland a say on a time-limited arrangement, meaning the North will remain aligned to the EU from the end of the transition for a period of at least four years. But more importantly, we'll see no checks at the border with Ireland. And I did have my concerns initially when Boris Johnson wanted Ireland to abandon the backstop and basically wanted the Irish government to trust him. But I think many are relieved that this deal avoids the need for a hard border. It does preserve the Good Friday Agreement. It would have upended this already fragile Good Friday Agreement. It would have had profound implications for that peace agreement. So it's also, and it's also in Ireland's best interests, economically and financially, to get an orderly and managed Brexit. The DUP have played a part in all this turmoil as well. It will be difficult to persuade them to support a Brexit deal. They put a stop to Theresa May's attempts to pass a deal. They rejected Boris Johnson's deal. And they said that they would reject it again if it's brought to Parliament unchanged after the election. The DUP leader Arlene Foster says that her party wants a deal but quote it has to be a deal that respects the constitutional and economic place of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom unquote. The party said that when Boris Johnson or what Boris Johnson is proposing undermines the integrity of the union making reference to customs and consent issues along with a lack of clarity on VAT. So I suppose the DUP are worried that under this deal, Northern Ireland would be treated differently from the rest of the UK, although they want to be treated differently when it comes to issues like abortion rights and same-sex marriage. Just saying. And the DUP have blocked many attempts at the Stormont Assembly to decriminalise abortion and legalise same-sex marriage, but failed to do so recently. And it is difficult to keep up with all the scandals that the DUP are involved in, the renewable heat incentive scandal and the red sky scandal come to mind first, but reportedly the DUP held meetings with loyalists recently with high-ranking figures from the UVF and the UDA to discuss Brexit, which didn't go over well with some. But whether the people in the North like it or not, the DUP are the sole representatives of the North in Westminster. They may not represent the majority of the people in the North, but as long as Sinn Féin refuses to take their seats in Westminster, then the DUP represent them in the UK Parliament. And of course Sinn Féin are going to keep refusing to take their seats because they are an abstentionist party. It is a long tradition that is rooted in their core beliefs. It would mean, among other things, that Sinn Féin recognises Northern Ireland as a part of the UK, which doesn't sit well 
with Sinn Féin because they believe that the North is a part of Ireland as a whole. And Sinn Féin have been using Brexit to push for a vote on a united Ireland. And I've talked about this issue before and I said that I'd like to see a, a united Ireland and I believe I will at some point in my lifetime. According to polls, there's only a slight majority of people in Northern Ireland that support a united Ireland. So it won't be easy to accomplish by any means because you need that consent of the majority of people in the North to pull it off successfully. And I think people overlook what a united Ireland will entail. It would mean a new constitution, a new flag could potentially be adopted. It would mean a whole new different state completely. And I know people think Brexit is a mess and it's been chaotic, but imagine how unionist and nationalist politicians will act if a vote on a united Ireland was planned. I could only imagine how that would all play out. But anyway, in conclusion, people do want to move on. They are fed up. They want the UK to just get on with it so all the Brexit fatigue can finally be over. They want the Brexit logjam to be broken once and for all. I think people long for a Brexit-free day with no mention of Brexit news on TV or on the radio or in the papers. I think the UK is stuck in this state of constant limbo and all the while not being able to escape these growing political divisions in opinion throughout the country which were brought on by Brexit. Reports show that as a result of Brexit, the UK is becoming a country deeply divided by class, place, age and values which could have a dramatic impact on politics in the future. If I had to make a prediction on what's going to happen in this UK general election that is on the horizon, if I was pushed for a prediction, I'd say the Conservatives will win back a majority in Parliament or the general election will lead to a hung Parliament in which no party wins a majority of seats. I believe a hung Parliament is a very distinct possibility. I'd be surprised if Labour won a majority, but I suppose anything is possible at this stage. It's possible that this general election that Boris Johnson insisted on having could backfire as well. But a general election provides the chance for voters to let their politicians know how angry they are. I'm sure there's a lot of anger and frustration felt by the electorate towards Parliament. But the question is how much of this anger and frustration will be reflected on election day. It will be interesting to see how it all manifests itself on election day on December the 12th. So we'll have to wait and see. So that is all the time I have. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. You can also check out my website, which is samasad.com, where you can find more of my content. So this has been yet another edition of the Third Degree Podcast. I'll catch you next time. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and visit us at thirddegreepodcast.com. This has been another edition of the Third Degree Podcast.